Good morning. Glad to be with you all this morning and appreciative of the invitation. And uh, I have uh, was grateful to run into, I, I had wanted to meet Clay Stauffer for some years because I'd appreciated things I'd seen that he writes and uh, publishes in the newspaper and uh, happened to uh, run into him a number of months ago with uh, another former student of mine who preaches across the way at Woodmont Baptist. And uh, next thing I know, uh, Clay and I have got to know each other a little bit and grateful to be invited to be here with you all and be a part of you all, your gatherings this morning. I'm also grateful, for those of you who know anything about uh, Stone Campbell history, I'm grateful to be here because I'm, I'm one of your first, long lost first cousins from uh, Churches of Christ. And uh, we're, you know, we're, we're kind of the, uh, the alienated first cousin over there. And so any, anytime the Christian church folks will invite a Church of Christ person, they're being brave and I'm thankful for the, uh, for the trust. As a matter of fact, uh, some years ago, I got invited to speak at Vine Street Christian Church. And as I was about to go out and pray, uh, preach, um, the minister and uh, one of the elders came in and and she said to me, um, she said, you're the first Church of Christ preacher to preach here since David Lipscomb himself. And uh, so I'm grateful for the uh, extension of Christian unity that we need all the more of these days. Some years ago, I was on campus and I walked into our arena and saw our men's basketball team practicing. And I heard the head coach blow his whistle very assertively and walk rapidly across the floor. He grabbed the basketball out of the hand of the guy who had just been dribbling it a second before, took it from him rather assertively, raised it above his shoulder and slammed it down as hard as he could on the floor. And he said, do the basics right. I've thought about that for years. Well, I think it's pretty good wisdom. And in this age in which we find ourselves, in which in many ways it's confusing some days, if not difficult, to know what it means to be a Christian in America, because we're given so many competing accounts of what it means to be a people of faith, that I remember this beautiful text out of Micah chapter 6 that you had read earlier this morning. That's one of the great texts of the canon of Scripture, one picture of some of the basics that we are called to do well. The rhetorical construct of Micah 6 was, was common among the prophets. They would sometimes imagine a court case. And it's a rather intimidating scene, really, because God has called the people to come together, and he says, I've got a case against you. And what happens in this imagined court case is that God is both judge, he is prosecutor, and he is jury. And he is not going to be easily sold against the charges that he has against the people of Israel. And he calls them together, asks them to make their case and let the surrounding nations, or in this case the surrounding mountains, hear what it is that they have to say. And so in Micah 6, rise, plead your case before the mountains, let the hills hear your voice. The Lord has a controversy with you and is going to contend with you. And the Lord says through the prophet, my people, what have I done to you? In what way have I wearied you? Answer me. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I gave you Moses, Aaron, Miriam. I delivered you in various ways through the centuries. In what way have I exhausted you? What do you have to say? 
And they respond in a way that is common for so-called religious people to respond throughout the centuries. That is, they say, well, with what shall we come before the Lord? Shall we bow ourselves before you on high, O God? Shall we come before you with burnt offerings? Shall we come with you, come before you with calves a year old? What, what about, if, if that's not enough, what about a, what about a thousand rams? What about 10,000 rivers of oil that we bring before you, O Lord? Shall, shall I give my firstborn child for my transgressions, O Lord? And then the prophet replying says, God has told you, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah, Micah, Amos, these were the great Hebrew prophets of old who worked in the 8th century B.C., it was a time of immense prosperity. It was a time of great socio-political ascendancy of the nation of Israel, perhaps the greatest days of Israel. They had immense wealth. They had great military might, about which they were oftentimes immensely proud. And in the midst of all this abundance and in the midst of all this plenty, what the prophet said to them repeatedly was, you do not care for the poor, you do not care for the marginalized, you are not caring for the widow and the orphan and the foreigner. And repeatedly, they would call them to this practice of justice. Justice for the prophets was not primarily a matter of punishment for wrongdoing, though sometimes that did indeed entail, justice did indeed entail that, but that was not primarily the focus of justice for the prophets. For the prophets, justice was first and foremost about the, the whole, the peace of the whole, the shalom of the whole, that everything would be rightly ordered in the community, especially being mindful of the marginalized, especially being mindful again of the poor and the widow and the foreigner. Justice was to order all things according to the goodness of God in which there would be this beloved community in which all people could know the goodness and the abundance of God. So repeatedly, the prophets pointed to this. There's the famous parable, for example, in Isaiah chapter 5, the parable of the vineyard, in which Isaiah says the Lord went out and he planted a vineyard. And he planted the vineyard and he cared for the vineyard and he, he tilled, he, he, sow, he sowed, he, he, he pruned, and he awaited the fruit of his vineyard. And yet, year after year, his pleasant planting provided no fruit. He said, what I expected was mishpat, but what I got was mishpach. What I expected was tzedakah, but what I got was tzedakah. That is, what I expected was mishpat, justice, but what I got was mishpach, bloodshed. I expected tzedakah, righteousness, but what I have found is tzedakah, the cry of the oppressed. Or there's Amos chapter 5, another great text. Amos, who is railed upon the wealth of Israel, who does not care for the ruin of Joseph, he said. 
And he says, take away from me the noise of your songs, the strumming of your harps. And he says, instead, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And here in our text, Micah says, he has shown you. That is, Micah does what the other prophets have done. He does what the book of Deuteronomy has done. He says, what you are called to do is what God has done already for you. You were slaves in Egypt. You were the marginalized ones. You were the foreigners. You were the oppressed. You were the poor. And God brought you out. And you are no longer poor. You are no longer aliens. You are no longer strangers. You're no longer the refugee. God has given you a name. God has given you an inheritance. God has given you a people. God has given you property. And he says, now, the God of justice, as the God of justice has done for you, you do for the people around you. He has shown you. Jesus, of course, in his own day, will declare in Luke chapter 4, citing Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to release the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and let the oppressed go free. Or check this out. When Jesus in, Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, you may not know that in Greek, that word there that's translated righteousness can just as easily be translated, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and its justice. Justice cannot be a hobby horse of the few. Justice is what it means to be the people of God. The great Abraham Heschel, the great scholar and rabbi, in his beautiful book on the prophets once said, he said, he said, no one will give you credit for breathing. In the same way, no one will give you credit for doing justice because it is what it means to be human. It's troubling, I think, that we live in a world of such partisan hostility in which everything gets categorized presumably as right or left that somehow justice and the quest for justice has been categorized as some hobby horse of the left or some hobby horse for liberals. And yet we face again and again in the text that the pursuit of justice is, if anything, if we're going to use one of those labels, the pursuit of justice is actually a conservative matter because it's there a long, 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 long time back. If we are to conserve, to take seriously the redemption of Israel from Egypt, the witness of the prophets, the ministry of Jesus, we must make it clear in our own day, we must find ways, brothers and sisters, in clear and unmistakable terms to voice a word in opposition to the machinations of the mighty and the greed of the powerful, the trampling of the poor, the imprisonment of the marginalized, the love of military might, the contempt for the weak, we must find ways ourselves to proclaim that the Pharaohs and the Balaams and the Balaks will not stand, that the mighty who strut through the earth in love of their power and in love of their might in contempt for the weak will not be victorious. To know that our task as integral as prayer as crucial to human life as breathing is to pursue and practice justice in every facet of our lives. God has told you, O oh mortal, do justice. And love mercy. 
Repeatedly, the prophets, the Psalms will say that God's steadfast love, God's mercy, God's kindness, which are all kind of synonymous in Hebrew, endures forever. That out of the mercy of God, we then are called to be merciful to others. When Jesus came among us, God incarnate, it was not just the systems and structures of power with which he dealt, though it was undoubtedly systems and structures of power with which he dealt, which ultimately would crucify him. But it was also human beings. It was also the woman at the well, a woman at the well that all would expect to be cast aside, to be rejected, rejected in her day as a woman, rejected as a woman five times married, rejected as a woman five times married who was then living with a man to whom she was not married, rejected as a woman who was five times married, who was living with a man that she wasn't married to, who was maybe worse of all, a Samaritan, a half-breed. And yet we see in Jesus sitting, drinking, listening, sharing. Or we see in Jesus this conflict in Matthew chapter 12 when Jesus is walking with his disciples through a, through a grain field. And his disciples are reaching over to the, to the wheat and taking some off and popping it in their mouth. And the, the Pharisees say to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. We know this. It's clearly violating Scripture. It says it. Rebuke your disciples, Jesus. And Jesus said, if you had known what this means, and then he quotes the prophet Hosea. If you had known what this means... I desire mercy and not sacrifice, then you would not have condemned the guiltless. As a, as a professional teacher of theology, this text haunts me. Because what Jesus makes very clear here is that it's very easy to quote the Bible. It's very easy to quote the tradition. But it is the lens by which we read the text. It is the lens by which we read the tradition that will determine whether or not we condemn the guiltless or not. It is the lens, Jesus says, of I desire mercy, not some sort of obsessive compulsive disorder, obsession with, with sacrifice. It is mercy. Otherwise, we may condemn the guiltless. There's Matthew 25, to feed the hungry and clothe the naked, to visit the imprisoned. But over and over again, what we see is that Jesus keeps upping the ante of what our mercy should look like. So that finally, and ultimately, perhaps most difficult for us, most difficult for me, who does have a strong, inbred, Alabama sense of right and wrong and justice and the way things ought to be and don't mess with my people, when Jesus said, you also are called by the kingdom of God to love your enemies. And yet, we live in an age 
exacerbated by our technology, exacerbated by our social media, of the greatest Pharisees perhaps ever known to humankind. The Pharisees of both the right and the Pharisees of the left. The shaming that comes from the right and the fundamentalists and the shaming that comes from the left and the far liberals. In which it seems everyone seems to have forgotten that Jesus said, with what judgment you judge, so will you be judged. Love justice. Yes. Do justice. Yes. Justice crusader who runs roughshod over the basic humanity, the tender mortality of even our enemies? No. Brothers and sisters, we are all, I suspect, very tender inside. Your brother or your sister, your child, your parents, your friend, your neighbor, maybe even your enemy, may desperately need the mercy of God through which they may know the goodness of God to which you have been called to be the vessel. God has shown you, O mortal, what is good. Do justice. Love mercy. And walk humbly with your God. It's fascinating, isn't it? that we serve a Messiah who did not have a messianic complex. Isn't that remarkable? That the Messiah, God incarnate in our midst, did not think that he had to make everything turn out right. If the cross of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, teaches us one thing, it's that we don't have to make everything turn out right that we are not so important that we for sure know the best way things have to be, that we are for sure right. Some um, months ago, I was interviewing, because of our, our Token Show project, our radio broadcast and uh, podcast, I was interviewing a former governor. And he's a former governor who's been... Um, not shy, though not wearing it on his sleeve either, about trying to take his Christian faith seriously in public service. And when I ask him, in what way has your most basic Christian commitments informed what you have tried to do in public service? He said that he tried to remember the words of his mentor who had told him Remember, 
the other guy might be right. And he went on to say that we Christians of all people ought to know, riddled as we are with sin, that we may be really wrong. And the terrible importance of learning to listen to people who disagree with us. So then what we have in the New Testament is this claim that when Christ came among us in the earliest hymn that we have in the New Testament, perhaps one of the earliest hymns of the, of the early Christian church in Philippians 2, the so-called kenosis hymn, the self-emptying hymn, that when Christ came among us equal with God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped or to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Or we have Matthew 18, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Or we have James 4, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and God will lift you up. The great need for us in bearing witness to justice and seeking to practice mercy is a foundational commitment underneath all of that to humility. Our bearing witness to justice, our commitment to mercy, both may be spoiled. Both may be insufficient, lacking fullness, if they are not suffused with the beautiful humility of Christ to which we are called. Here then, brothers and sisters, what the Lord has said. Do justice. Love mercy. And let us walk humbly with our God. Amen.